dark and dusty drapes Let in some light Tell the billboy come and get my trunk Cause I'm leaving here tonight Hey everybody and welcome back to a new episode of Meryl Streep and the Movies with Zachary Scott Johnson and Meryl McNally. I've never felt uh, odder asking this question, but how are you, Meryl? <laughs> I'm just great, Zach. How are you? Oh, I, you know, I just hugged strangers on the street. and <laughs> Breathe on them. <laughs> yeah, I just went to a jam-packed restaurant and then a concert. It was pretty good. Um, no, we're in the, if you are listening to this episode in the future, if you're listening to this episode, like three years later and wondering why we're being so weird, um, we're, we're about a month or so into the COVID-19 lockdown here. This is, um, a period of time in which hopefully you remember, and we're not all robots. Maybe it's the aliens listening to this. We don't know, but we, uh, we're, we're locked in our houses for the most part and uh, going a little stir crazy. <laughs> and um, yeah. So it's, it's been an odd time that I'm sure listeners will remember. But, you know, long story short, how are things going for you, Meryl? Tell us as much as you want to tell us about I what know, life right? looks like right now. Um, you know, I, my situation is so similar to other people. So um, most of you know, if you're ongoing listeners, that I live in New York. And I, I live in a t- tiny 400-square-foot apartment and um, not a lot of sunlight. I have, you know, two small windows and I have two cats. And this thing started to pick up speed about mid-March. I want to say around March 10th. And I, uh, I rented myself a car, packed up my cats, and bolted from Manhattan. I drove cross-country to be with my family in New Mexico and got here, I want to say the 19th of March. So I've been sheltering at home at my parents in New Mexico. I'm so grateful yeah, to you did have the right access. Thing. Yeah, to have access to a car in green grass and sunshine. I have so many friends back in Manhattan who are going through it. I, you know, is really, really interesting. I, I think every major sort of national or global event um, that has happened like this, although nothing is really like this, I have been in New Mexico and quite distant from it. So I've always sort of been a voyeur watching it happen from afar. And it was really, truly fascinating um, and incredibly stressful to be in Manhattan amongst, you know, 8 million people who had the same level of fear and anxiety I did. It was really overwhelming. I've never experienced anything like that before. And I feel for everyone there very deeply. Yeah. Yeah, and it's just obviously gotten worse. It's uh, it's so so sad and crazy, totally yeah. crazy, surreal. So nothing, nothing like this. Hopefully, we'll never go through anything like this again. It, I was actually just hope so. I was saying today. I there are so many. I'm one of those people who I'm not really. Um, 
I don't go to lengths in terms of like uh, like building bomb shelters or anything like that. But I, I have thought through various scenarios of like things that might conceivably happen in our lifetime. I've always kind of one I've had fears of uh, like, you know, our power grids being shut down. Mm-hmm. And I actually feel like that would be a very effective way for somebody to do harm to this country who wanted to do harm to this country. And I think about things mm-hmm. like that. I'm a worrier in that sense. And um, this is one thing that I just never saw coming that like a virus that was not at least as far as we know. And and man, what a turn of events it would be if we found out otherwise. But this is not something that was like directed at us specifically, like right. we weren't targeted with this thing. You know, it, it wasn't set off to like kill as many Americans as as possible. And, um, you know, everybody across the world is going through the same thing. And it's just something that I never thought would happen in our lifetime. I thought like our technology and our medical, you know, awareness was, was more, you know, kind of, uh, I don't want to say better than it is, because of course, it's not a matter of that. Like you can't, there's no way to prep for every possible scenario that could ever be. And that's kind of what's happened here. Yeah. Um, but I ju- this is just so strange and being out in the world right now is so strange. And um, I think we're all trying to figure out basically like, what is this new way of life? And, um, you know, I know people are are asking that we don't call this the new normal because I think there is some legitimate concerns about considering this to be normal. It's not normal. And, and what we're going through right now is a very... Um, uh, specialized thing. And so, uh, you know, calling it normal is not a great thing to do, but it's interesting you say that because I have, there's this strange phenomenon happening to me and I'm really curious if it's happening to you or, and other people or listeners is that it was, and maybe also because I was in New York for sort of the start of this, that it was, it was very intense, very quickly. And um, so now when I am uh, watching something, which is often because that's all we really can do at this point. So I watch a movie on Netflix and it was made like five years ago and it's a comedy and they're talking about traveling and they're not social distancing. And I find myself getting very confused. I'm like, this is so unrealistic. They're way too close. They're talking like right next to each other. How, they can't travel. That's not a thing. <laughs> you can't get out of <laughs> So it very quickly became my normal. And wow. it, I find that I find that sort of psychological switch very interesting that that sort of what we're going through can become our reality that quickly. It's mm-hmm. fascinating to me. Yeah. yeah. I'm not experiencing that. Same. I'm so glad because it's very trippy and obviously it lasts for about a second. And then I'm like, oh, yeah, never mind. I mean, I've only really been out a couple times, truth be told, where like I'm around um People like I've gone to the grocery store once or twice and there I get like I, I get unreasonably pissed. Well, maybe not unreasonably. But I, I get upset if somebody like there are employees at the store who, you know, like they're just not taking it the same level of like seriousness that the rest of us are or they probably are. It's just like they have to do their jobs and whatever. But like I every time I see somebody who doesn't like immediately go to the complete opposite, like stay as far away as possible in these thin aisles. If somebody like an employee is standing in the middle of the aisle, I get like really upset about it. And I, yeah. I, 
Like, why aren't you taking this seriously? Um, I do wonder how how long after we're told, you know, it's okay, you can go outside again, how long till it feels normal to be in a theater again or, you know, in a, Not have anxiety. Right. Yeah. It might be a while. Uh, yeah, I think so. I think it's going to be a while. I was in the grocery store the other day and this uh, this gentleman was behind me and he struck up a conversation with me and um, he was not social distancing. So I kept like stepping back and stepping back. And he kept saying, you know, I'm not going to live my life in fear. I ever, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to get out and do what I want. And every time he would say it, he would take a step closer to me. And I finally was like, sir, you may not be living your life in fear, but I am six feet, man. Six feet. Yeah. My, my new favorite, as you know, um, I, I've gone off on many political rants here. I'm not about to do that. However, the people who think that they are smarter than a virus have become my new what is wrong with you type of person. Because, I, you know, you see them on social media. They're like, what's the big deal? Um, you know, every scientist in the world is pretty much in agreement on this. Bubba or whatever your name is, I don't need your opinion. You know, <laughs> this is not something you need to weigh in on because it inconveniences you. It, it, anyway, so with that being said, as long as we're kind of talking about uh, Netflix and all of that, what have you yeah. watched lately? Have you seen anything interesting? Well, right on point. I decided um, this was a very ill-advised choice, by the way. I decided, because it was trending, I'm not the only one, decided to watch Contagion. Oh. <laughs> I have never seen Contagion. I remember when it came out, but I did not partake. It is eerily accurate. Yep. Um, d- down to strange details. And I, I guess Scott Burns wrote it, and... Um, I can't remember if it was Variety. Somebody interviewed him about the resurgence and popularity for this film. And he said that every every scientist um, and doctor he talked to prepping prepping the screenplay said it was just a, a matter of when, not if. And um, the film... And that movie came out in 2011. So the fact that the medical world has been aware that this was going to happen for so long and we're all a bunch of like idiots running around with our heads cut off speaks volumes Mm. (laughs) Uh, about how much we're willing to listen. That's right. I remember when that movie came out because it's got such a great cast. um, Yeah. And I remember that movie was not uh, received terribly well, if I remember correctly. I don't think it was a bomb or anything, but I do think it was just kind of, it was met with kind of a shrug, you know, a collective like, okay, whatever. And um, I remember being somewhat surprised because that was one of those movies. There's there's a couple movies every year like that where it just, it seems like, oh, that has awards potential. Like, look at that cast, look at the subject line. You know, it's got a great trailer or whatever. And, you know, this is going to be something. And then it just kind of like nothing happens with it. Yeah. Um, last last off season, I would say First Man was like that. And actually to a certain degree, like Harriet was like that. Um, mm-hmm. And a couple other ones. And 
that was that was one that I distinctly remember. Oh, this is going to be a bigger deal than it ended up being, and I liked it, but it just kind of like I found the movie to be even at the time very creepy and very oh I don't I don't even want to think about that you know yep yep out of sight out of mind it's fascinating yeah. Um, yeah and just in terms like you know it's a Steven Soderbergh movie it definitely has his stamp on it that sort of documentary um, style. I think, I think his movies kind of his movies like that. Those, like Syriana and he did Syriana, right? Yes, I think so. Yeah, yeah. I think they fall into two camps. You either you either find a way to get on board with one of the characters and you're with it to the end, so it's more compelling, or it's just sort of so ensemble ish and um, event based that you don't quite connect with characters in the same way if if i'm speaking clearly i'm not yeah my brain is mush and so i think it falls into that camp where you don't quite matt damon's probably the closest um to a character that you can really like get on board with and travel through the whole thing with but because it's so disparate in terms of all the aspects of of a pandemic that they're addressing the world health organization, the CDC, um, an actual family. It's just so spread out. You can't really, you can't really get in the weeds with it. Yeah. So I think that's why it just didn't hit. Yeah. Well, actually, and even that has some, uh, comparisons possible to like, even the laundromat, like, yeah, even the yeah exactly. Yeah, the way Meryl's character is like front and center, and then she disappears for a solid like forty minutes, and then is back. You know, like it, yeah. he he likes to travel with with people in his movies. I guess is kind of the thing. But yeah. okay, well that made me curious to revisit that. Have you seen anything else that uh, you would either give a th- strong thumbs up or don't bother with? I watched Just Mercy last night with Michael B. Jordan and Jamie Fox. Oh, how is that? I was curious about that. It's very good. I highly recommend it. Um, it's a, it's, I would say in some ways it's sort of your traditional legal drama. Sure. Um, you know, um, underdog situation. I think it, I think it's so powerful because um, it's, it is based on a true story, of course, but I, there's just such a problem in our judicial system um, with regard to over-incarceration of, of Black people and um, false convictions, particularly in the South. And I just think the more we draw attention to it, the better. It reminded me quite a bit of, it's a very similar case to the Curtis Flowers case, which is in another fantastic podcast that I would recommend to any of our listeners. Um, it, it's, is it in the dark? It's in it the is. dark. Yes. Yeah. So good. Um, but it, it has a very sort of similar trajectory, which just shows you that this is a <laughs> uh, coming very close to a common occurrence, which is scary. Yeah. Yeah. But yes, I highly recommend it. Yeah. Cool. I will uh, second that recommendation for In the Dark. I actually, um, I've been a fan of In the Dark since their first season, um, which was a very hard to listen to case, the Jacob Wetterling case that a lot of people from our generation might remember. Um, it's it's actually Minnesota Public Media, so it's it's folks 
uh, here and around me who are who are doing that. And if you ask me, I mean, like they literally have saved Curtis Flowers from death row. They literally yeah. have saved this man's life. As far as I'm concerned, and I've said this many times now um, on social media, but I, I think they should be winning every Pulitzer, every every right? award that's possible to win. It is Madeline Barron. Madeline Barron. Yeah. It is without without trying to sound kind of ridiculous, I think it is the finest reporting I've ever seen in my life. It is just astonishing what they're doing. I would agree with you. The way they're, I mean, I've just never seen somebody, it it kind of is like, because it's in podcast format, it brings everybody back to like serial season one in a way, Mm -hmm. but I've just never seen somebody dismantle a case just so effectively and so, I mean, just like down to every detail. It's just astonishing what they've been able to do with their reporting. And it's just, it's, uh, you know, it is one of those cases, of course, where you're primary, it's, it's, I don't want to say bias, but they, they're coming at it from, with the point of view, they're coming at it with the perspective of he's been wrongly imprisoned. And so they're not really trying to do the both sides argument. And so there is something to be said there, um, you know, like there could be, it's kind of like the arguments with making a murderer, you know, that Netflix show where there are some people who say, well, there's a lot they left out of the documentary. Uh, I haven't heard the same arguments made about in the dark. And yeah, I mean, I didn't, I felt like maybe, and this, this could be my own bias, but I, I felt it was very different from making a murderer. I felt like they came at it with a giant question mark. Why has this man been tried six times for the same crime? And I right. didn't feel like they made a pre any sort of prejudgments about his guilt or innocence before they dug in. I just find them to be very responsible, thoughtful reporters. Right. And I also, I, I'm right on board with you that it's some of the best journalism I have ever encountered because they, sh- they show so much respect to every single person they interview and they really allow the story to unfold through other people's words. Right. They're quite careful not to direct somebody um they just ask questions right and i i just think it's magnificent i'm a right. huge fan yeah yeah and actually that um you're, i think uh, that was well spoken i think that was that was good and the um it's it's similar to what they did in that first season because again they weren't really trying to break the jacob Wetterling case although something very interesting happened which is that probably entirely by coincidence um the the person who actually did the crime in the Jacob Wetterling case ended up ad, uh, admitting it kind of out of the blue um, in some ways, uh, right around the same time that the podcast was released. But what they what they set out to do in that first season wasn't necessarily to break the case. It was an examination of how how the uh, investigation had failed and and how exactly they had gone wrong and other people that they should have looked at and the people that they did look at um, who they probably focused on in a way that they shouldn't have. They zeroed in, unfortunately, on a couple of people and really did some damage to their reputations needlessly. And um, so anyway, in the dark, people, go listen yeah. to that. They're doing something very different than we do here. but Yes, and it's lovely. And it we is. need all the podcasts we can get right now, folks. Indeed. <laughs> um I haven't really been watching 
anything no? worth talking about, I don't think. I, I watched the the new Pixar movie the other night. I think it's called Forward. Um, you know, they put it on Disney Plus um, a little early. I don't know if you saw that one. That's I think it's the, Onward. Is it Onward? Onward, yes. What did I say? Forward? Yeah. <laughs> it sounds right. <laughs> I will say this is maybe the most forgettable Pixar movie I've ever seen. It was just Ooh. kind of, I mean, it wasn't bad, but it was just kind of, it wasn't up to their usual standards, I don't think. Mm. Uh, but outside of that and some, you know, unfortunate reality TV stuff that I normally <laughs> don't go for, but yes, I watched Tiger King and yes, I watched Ooh. Love is Blind. And <laughs> I was going to ask you about Love is Blind. <laughs> oh, I watched the shit out of that show. That was... Everybody did. It, did you watch I did it? Not. I did not. But it's in my list. I just can't bring myself to hit play. <laughs> I, you know, part of it was I did not grow up with like MTV. So like the real world, when I discovered that post-college and I was like, oh my God, this has been on television for how many years? And I just am like, fine. I've never watched a single episode of The Bachelor or even Survivor or, you know, any of that stuff. It's just not yeah. something that I've ever gravitated to. Um, Love is Blind turned out to be my kind of like, uh, not introduction, because I have seen a few things. Um but man, so strange and so, so bizarre. And I could talk for a long, I mean, especially when I had watched, I watched it like everybody when it first came out. So it's been a month or so. So I don't, I'm not, you know, we've had things that have taken our attention since then. But yeah. I, you know, there were a couple of days there where it was all I really wanted to talk about to anybody. And I could have talked <laughs> conservatively for five hours just on that show. But um, I, you know, Nick Lachey and his wife, uh what is her name vanessa yeah she seems very like nice and normal and he's he, they're actually not on it that much but every time he introduces himself he says i'm nick lachey obviously no and the obviously <laughs> is, is just like what are you really <laughs> oh that kills me that's, that's just amazing that was the first, like, that's within the first five minutes that he does it. The first time, and it's like, oh man, strap in. This is gonna be, this is gonna be crazy. <laughs> I'm Nick Lachey, obviously. <laughs> oh, that's magic. <laughs> yes. So um, let's talk about what we're here to talk about, and let's preface it. I'm sure people have noticed, you know, if you if you yeah. clicked on this, that we are not talking about Holocaust. Yeah. Uh, My fault. Not, well, it's okay. As, as Nobody both, needs the Holocaust right now. Nobody. We we have agreed that this is probably just not the time. Hello, Kitty. <laughs> I can see Meryl's screen and the cat's just walking right in front of me. My right cats now. take strolls in front of me every five seconds. Um, we yes, we we were in agreement that this is not the time to talk about Holocaust, and um, so. We're also going to stop saying that we're going to talk about Holocaust next yes. time. We're just going to we're going to push that one off for probably a while. And <laughs> if this breaks your heart, write us and let us know. I mean, it's not going to change what we're do what we're going to do. <laughs> but you know, let us know if you're like the the Holocaust. Uh, you know, if you're like the big fan of this miniseries, it was a big deal when that miniseries came on. Like there are things to talk about because that that miniseries was actually huge when it came yeah. out like you know it was like almost as big a deal as roots just a few years after that you know like really wild um but that's neither here nor there we are we are taking uh 
a completely opposite road <laughs> to Holocaust. Um, and we're talking about the 1992 comedy slash fantasy slash strange <laughs> and unique movie, Death Becomes Her, which uh, Meryl starred in with Goldie Hawn, Bruce Willis, and Isabella Rossellini, uh, directed by Robert Zemeckis. So, uh, Meryl, I'm sure you've seen this movie before. Yes. How how did this viewing hold up compared to previous viewing? Watching it with a more critical eye. Uh, I, <laughs> I've been rendered speechless. Um, no, you know what? Two two sort of separate trains of thought. One, it it holds up in certain ways because of its strength of point of view. Yeah. Right? Like, there's a quality in the filmmaking and the writing and the direction and the commitment of the actors that even though this movie is of a very specific time with very specific attitudes mm-hmm. and messages, it still holds up in a weird way. Mm-hmm. I think. I really think that probably has a large part to do with Meryl Streep and Goldie Hawn because you can tell they're having a lot of fun. Bruce Willis as well. You can tell they're having fun. And I th- I think that probably lends itself to it. But mm-hmm. it's such a strange, strange movie. And I think the last time I saw it was the 90s when it came oh. out. And, and because it was of the time, I really didn't think anything of it besides the fact that it was funny then so it's Mm -hmm. very interesting to watch in 2020 sure (laughs) yeah uh what what did did you think about it um i have seen this movie before as well Uh, you know it is a movie i guess the thing that i kept wondering was i wonder if this is a movie that Meryl, I wonder how she looks back on this movie because it kind of seems anti a lot of the things that she or that yeah. she would be now. This seems like maybe a movie she wouldn't make now, um, in the sense that like it's, I, I but it also like you say has kind. Of, it's not a bad movie, and it like it's a comedy, and so it's a send up of these things. It's a parody. It's a satire in some ways of like this idea of women needing to stay youthful and looking good uh as and being obsessed with it above all things right that is the thing that matters and um this very i mean he's bruce willis but he's it's a weird role for bruce willis right and um i don't know like he seems like kind of a very mediocre guy throughout most of this movie right like yeah. they're not playing up this like you know, early '90s Bruce Willis as a sex symbol thing. That's not what he's doing. No, no, he's he's he plays like a sort of nerdy, yeah, nerdy quiet guy. Right. So you've got Goldie Hawn and Meryl Streep competing for this like very mediocre person. And I, I I guess there's just something in that 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 I don't think would probably Who, it also is like supposed to be a world renowned plastic surgeon. So let's just let's keep thing on let's keep things on point for the ladies. <laughs> right. And actually that that was another thing that I guess I kind of like that seemed like a weird and kind of unnecessary detail. I, I kind of don't know why he needed to be a plastic surgeon. What was the purpose of that ultimately? I guess I I guess a transition 
I'm going to do a quick plot synopsis. I think oh, that yes. will help. I forgot okay. about that. Um, so the premise is that Goldie Hawn is sort of a, a bookish writer with a terrible bowl cut. And <laughs> Meryl Streep is a famous actress who is actually seems to be a failing actress. She's in a terrible musical version of Tennessee Williams' Sweet Bird of Youth when the movie opens. And uh, Bruce Willis plays um, Goldie Hawn's fiance, and they've gone to see Meryl Streep, who is her old classmate in the show. They go backstage to meet her. Bruce Willis is head over heels for Meryl Streep and leaves Goldie Hawn. And then Goldie Hawn kind of goes off the deep end and um, is out for revenge for most of the movie. And it's about who can be more beautiful and youthful and steal back Bruce Willis, I would say. Right. Yeah. So the the um, I actually kind of I'm curious about your feelings on the beginning. This is one of the movies that like it was funny because I actually when it kind of gets going. I clicked on the timer and it was like 53 minutes into an hour and 40 or so minute thing where mm -hmm. it was like, okay, now I see what this movie, you know, like if I was just yeah. watching it for the first time, this is like, okay, this is where it really gets going. So there's kind of a lot of setup. And, yeah. um, but what's also interesting, I think, is in the very beginning, a lot happens really fast within the first five minutes. This is not a movie where you want to miss the first five minutes of because it, it tells you kind of like it's such a big setup for the thing. I, the, the Broadway show that she's in. So, again, she's kind of like, you know, this slightly past her prime um you know, she had been on, she'd been in movies and now she was doing this big lavish Broadway production that the audience is just walking out on. They're just leaving in droves. And it does seem a little bit over the top and it does seem bad, but at the same time, it also seems like kind of just like a lavish Broadway production, like until they get yeah. into, I didn't understand if this is what people wouldn't really be walking out like they no, do. No, exactly. Especially in that musical number. I mean, right. I, I watched just as a musical number, it was quite entertaining. Yeah. And also it, it's a very interesting joke for film audiences because I don't think Tennessee Williams' Sweet Bird of Youth is a sort of mainstream <laughs> play that people will get the joke. Right. There's like 1970s disco music musical number in Sweet Bird of View. Like it's not, it's sort of a weird joke to make at the top of the movie. And I'm pretty sure it wouldn't land. <laughs> yes. Not, not to digress here, but if I could. Um, the, yeah. One of the things that I think is, I think some aspects here of this movie will make a little bit more sense uh, when I mention that this movie was written by two people, um, Martin Donovan, who is super old school, like has a ton of credits before this, wrote a lot of like TV stuff. And then after this, David Kep, who has an incredible career, he, um, especially right after this, he wrote uh, the screenplay for Jurassic Park, Carlito's Way, 
um, Mission Impossible, the you know the first one with Tom Cruise, uh, the second Jurassic Park, The Lost World, Panic Room, Spider Man, that whole reboot with Tobey Maguire. He at War of the Worlds. He has this just absolutely incredible career. He definitely has a bunch of duds mixed in there too, but he has done some really really cool stuff. He's currently writing the the next Indiana Jones movie. But the other guy, uh, Martin Donovan, like I said, he's so old school. Everything. Um, you know, that he wrote, this is one of his last credits. This is like his third or fourth to last and everything before that he wrote on like the love boat and Webster and the Jeffersons and stuff like that the odd couple. So this sweet bird of youth is totally that. (laughs) It absolutely is. And it's so funny that you say that because you can see those two. I know you can see those two characteristics in the script. It's like, exactly. It's oddly strong, but also, like, just sort of off. Yeah. It's like both. I don't know how it can be both at the same time, and it is. And I wonder which one of them had the first, you know, like, pass at it, and which one of them did the rewrite, and, you know. (laughs) Fascinating. It makes a lot of sense. I think that explains uh, half of this movie right there. But there's so much that happens right away. And then there's this whole thing, which, again, was... Ultimately, like, it's kind of very similar to, like, she did this. This was actually the last in Merrill. She did this, like, four uh, comedies all in a row. You know, she, like, during the late 70s and 80s, she did all these dark, dark movies. And I think she was just kind of feeling like, oh, everybody thinks, you know, I'm so serious. And so she made four comedies all in a row. She did She-Devil, Postcards from the Edge, Defending Your Life, and then this, this was the last in this run of four comedies. Um, and then after this, she did House of the Spirits, which if you remember doing that one, that is so bleak and so rough. Yep. And then after that did The River Wild. So like, you know, I mean, wow. these three movies are so just bonkers different going from one to the next. Yeah. But this, so Goldie Hawn in this one does the like fat suit thing for yeah. like two scenes. And then is back to, you know, looking like Goldie Hawn. And that seemed like, okay, there were similarities there to like She-Devil and like, I don't know, that part. Yeah. It's kind of inconsequential in in the like longevity of this movie. Like they didn't need that in there, really. I guess it it, in the 90s probably played for some cheap laughs. I'm sure that was like hysterical in 1992. But, you know, um, outside of that... I don't know. This is just, it's an odd start to this movie. It's a very odd start. I I found, um, obviously we have a different dialogue around both women and, you know, sort of physical health and obesity. And our language is so different now, for sure. I find that this film has a, it's just got a very, very negative, offensive um, point of view on, on obesity. (laughs) I, I find, I found it pretty offensive, more offensive than it was to women. Yeah. Because, and I think that has to do with Goldie Hawn and Meryl Streep, because I think they are so over the top that there's this world where I can 
excuse the point of view of the script and say that this is just particular to these two women for very specific reasons, that's probably not true. Like, do you see what I'm saying? Like, I, I, f- I find, like, there's a shot of Goldie Hawn in the insane asylum. She's let herself go. She's wearing, she's wearing the fat suit. And there's a shot of her sitting in the group therapy session from behind where the entire point of the shot is to catch her very large butt cheek. And I just was very grossed out by that. Not by her, but by that point of view. Yeah. Um, from that lens. I was like, this is not necessary. Yeah. It was the same reason that a decade later, Shallow Hell came out. Yes. And- it was received as poorly as it was because it was like, you know what? This isn't creative. This is just like the cheapest of cheap laughs right here. This is just, and and luckily, you know, like I said, that's probably two minutes of the movie. And it is an unnecessary. It's like the message is if you are overweight, your life right. not only doesn't have meaning, but you are unstable, you can't hold a job. Like all of that is packed into the beginning of this movie in a way that I don't I don't think is on purpose. And so it's quite it's quite offensive. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And that's why for so many reasons, uh, you know, two two women who are known to be quite progressive, Meryl Streep and Goldie yeah. Hawn, it's an interesting take for them you know especially considering like this is around the time that Meryl um was kind of very vocal about the roles that she was being offered and this was maybe right before uh there was that infamous like year where she was offered three witches and she didn't you know she refused to take that role until Into the Woods came along and in this in this way, like, I don't know, I guess maybe because it was campy and it was a comedy, maybe it seemed different. Um, and it, and it is, I don't know. I, I don't know. I guess ultimately this movie, when you look at it through a 2020 lens, this movie is problematic. It is really interesting to look at the nineties. Um, this is related a little, a little off, but coming back i i was watching tv at my parents house and grumpy old men was on Mm. and um you know that movie is about two grumpy old men and the beautiful woman moves in in the neighborhood and margaret and they both fall in love with her and they both vie for her attention and she ends up i mean in the end she ends up marrying jack lemon but we are talking two grumpy old men and i looked at imdb and and margaret is 56 when she made this movie 56 she is the romantic interest for two grumpy old men i'm sorry in their 70s kate yes kate blanchett jennifer lopez they're 50. i mean the just the point of view that women in their 50s were relegated to stories about old men yeah. <laughs> I mean, that was the 90s. So if you look at that context, this is a very different world. Yeah. Very well, different. And in Grumpy Old Men, I think one of the other things that's problematic there, and I guess like we never really we never really see a scene with Anne Margaret without one of the other two. You know what I mean? Like no. she has no identity except for... It does not pass the Bechdel test. <laughs> no, of course not. No. But, um, 
Like, she has no real agency or any real, like, identity outside of how she's perceived by Jack Lemmon and Walter Matthau. But, like, the idea there is not just that. I mean, it is really, it is literally as if she doesn't have a choice. She's going to end up with one of the two. It's just figuring out which one of the two. And that ultimately is like the holy shit, what? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. You know, not to, may they both rest in peace, but I also want to remind you that one of them was Walter Matthau, you know? <laughs> no, right? <laughs> who, who, by the way, in the second one, ends up with Sophia Loren, so. <laughs> so wrong. It's just so bad. Uh, so that's the 90s. It's also, very different. <laughs> I went to see those movies in the theater, and I fucking loved them, Meryl. Me so. too! Oh, me too. We laughed so hard. We watched them on repeat as a family. There was no question. There, there was nothing that raised a question mark. We were like, yes, of course. Yeah. Fine. And in a similar vein, not to, you know, not to excuse any of these things, but this is also a movie that like has its funny moments. Uh, you know, when Goldie Hawn, I'm not this is it. We were talking about this in the River Wild. The idea that Meryl actually shot a gun. Um, she shoots a hole through the middle of Goldie Hawn in this movie, which is actually really funny. Um, and one of the things that is, you know, she has no middle to her stomach for a good long chunk of this movie, and they're like in this kind of sword fight thing with with spears. Meryl throws one through the middle of her stomach and goes, "Yes, oh no." it's so cute (laughs) like there are some really genuinely funny moments in here actually um i don't know do we want to move on from the problematic stuff i feel like we can't have that because i think there's a lot of good stuff to talk about for the film and the performances except i also feel like we can't uh we can't get through this whole thing with talking about without talking about the fact that Isabella Rossellini is also in this movie and doesn't wear a single stitch of clothing the entire movie. Nope, just some jewelry that covers up <laughs> covers up the private bits. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no. And also the fact that, you know, at the end of the movie we're 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 singing the the plastic surgeon's praises. Yeah. He's the one who understood what it meant to be alive and live a fulfilling life. Right. He oh, was the one, he's the one who made the noble choice. The one that, uh, you know, he's the one yeah. that learned something. The sketchball who abandoned his fiance and married a woman he was obsessed with. And then became considered- an alcoholic and lost his job as a plastic surgeon and became a... Um, um, a mortuary <laughs> assistant. This is the guy who made the upstanding moral choice. Right. Well, and then considered leaving, you know, Merrill then for Goldie after having left Goldie for Merrill. <laughs> like, you know, hey, whatever at this point. I um, know, right? Let, I, I feel like we're, we're going to get uh, a few people upset here about, um, you know, t- going too hard on this movie because, again, there are some really genuinely funny things in this movie and let's talk about the effects how do you feel like the effects hold up because this is a very effects heavy movie you know i think they hold up pretty well i, I think t- the i think the camp aspect of it really helps because in no world are we meant to think that this is realistic that meryl streep's head gets turned on backwards right. but i think i, I was really impressed 
I watched it with my mom. My mom was impressed too. She's like, wow, this really kind of holds up. I'm like, yeah. 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 So um, funny. It won. Uh, sorry, I'm looking this up as you're talking. Yeah. Um, it won an Oscar for best visual effects. Oh my gosh. That makes sense to me. That impresses me. But yeah, no, I that totally makes sense. And I think they're pretty good. And so it won Best Visual Effects beating Alien 3 and Batman Returns. I guess there were only three movies nominated that wow. year. Uh, but it beat that. I, I don't. Well, Alien 3, too. I mean, that was a legit movie. That was not one of the better ones in that series. But um, Batman Returns and Alien 3. And this beat both of them. This was also the only um, Oscar that it was up for. Meryl was nominated for a Golden Globe that year um, for... As you know, the Golden Globes have more categories. They have the musical and comedy and then drama categories. So it kind of doubles the amount of. Um, but she she lost to Miranda Richardson, maybe. Mm. Uh, I think it was Miranda Richardson. I actually watched the the thing here. I watched Miranda Richardson's speech and it was one of the like one of those just kind of cringy <laughs> Oh, speeches. She just didn't have anything to say. It was just like, oh, my God, I can't believe I won. Thank you. I just can't believe I won. And she just kind of kept repeating that over and over. Like, well, say something. Um, But she, yeah, let me look it up quick as long as I'm looking things up here. It was kind of a, it was a solid year in terms of um, nominees in that category. Yes, it was Miranda Richardson won for Enchanted April. So she beat Meryl for Death Becomes Her, Gina Davis for A League of Their Own, classic, Whoopi Goldberg for Sister Act, classic, Shirley MacLaine for Used People. I've not seen that movie, but I like Shirley MacLaine. Like, you know, Miranda Richardson. Have you seen Enchanted April, that movie? No, but it's in my queue. I've had it in my queue for ages and ages, and I have never seen it. Yeah, I think I've. I think I've seen it. So this movie won a few things. This movie did pretty well at the box office. You know, it was, it, it made some money. It made almost a the Did you? I think I did. I have a memory of seeing it in the theater. I was, I was 10 at the time. So that would make sense. Yeah. I, you know, I'm not surprised. It, I mean, it had big stars, really popular at the time. It's fun. It's entertaining. It's an entertaining yeah. movie. Yeah. Um, this one is is really interesting. We were talking about where it sat in Merrill's filmography. I actually felt like out of kind of like the main four, it's kind of an interesting spot for each of them, in particular, actually, with Bruce Willis. So he had done Die Hard and Die Hard 2 was like huge, huge, huge star, right? Then he did a whole bunch. Well, I shouldn't say a whole bunch, but he did several movies that were not well received all in a row. He did Bonfire of the Vanities, which is widely regarded as like a big time, big time flop. He did a movie called Hudson Hawk, which actually was very poorly received too. Billy Bathgate, I don't know if you ever saw that movie with him and um, Dustin Hoffman and Nicole Kidman. That one was one I think they thought would be a big deal and it wasn't. Right before this, he did a movie called The Last Boy Scout, which actually did fine. It didn't do, mm-hmm. you know, great, but it did fine. Um, but then he did this movie and then another one called Striking Distance, which I don't know anything about, except it did really poorly too. And then Pulp Fiction and he was kind of back on top again. But, you know, this was kind of right in the middle of like, you know, a not so great stretch for him. And he's had a few of those throughout his career, you know, like four years or so where he's just, plump, you know, pumping out yeah. a bunch of movies that don't go anywhere. Um, 
And then Goldie Hawn, I guess it's maybe not quite as interesting, but she did a movie called House Sitter shortly before this mm-hmm. with Steve Martin. Um, then this movie, and then she did, she had a four year break between 1992 and 1996 where she didn't do anything. And then in 1996 did both uh, First Wives Club and a movie called Everyone Says I Love You, which is a Woody Allen movie. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't know, like it, this is a movie where I would say those three stars, none of them were at their like peak peak, you know, mm-hmm. but I, this movie was probably, and I, I bet some of it had to do with Zemeckis too. He had just come off of the back to the future trilogy right after this, he did Forrest Gump. Like he was right in the middle of his prime, you know? Yeah. But I bet it was co-star draw too. I mean, you can tell they were just looking to have some fun. And maybe that, I mean, who knows? I'm absolutely projecting. But if you're, especially like if you're Bruce Willis and you, you know Meryl Streep and Goldie Hawn have signed on to a movie. And I don't know who signed on first or who knew what. But, you know, if you're in a bad streak, why not just have some fun? Right. <laughs> you know, it's just at some point you just got to go for it. Well, and on paper, the idea it of this great. Movie- yeah, the idea of this movie probably was that it would be successful. You know, like, again, Zemeckis was a big deal at this time, just coming off of uh, the Back to the Future trilogy. And he was making this movie that was had a lot of money pumped into these special effects and was going, I mean, like, was going to be groundbreaking in that regard. And I think it is. Those effects are, I've never seen those kinds of effects even really still. No. Yeah. I think they did a great job. I think I think what I think what holds up quite a bit in this is that yeah, you can tell there are some computer graphics, but you can tell that where they could avoid it and use makeup and prosthetics, they did. Yeah. And I think that's one of the reasons why it does hold up is because um that those those graphics are at least they appear to be minimal. Right. Right. And there are scenes like, you know, I probably the most iconic is when, you know, Meryl goes down the staircase and then her head is backwards, right? She has to walk yeah. backwards. Um, and that one is probably the one that I don't know, from my perspective, that one didn't look quite as good as the other ones. Even yeah. at the very end of the movie when they're like when their bodies are literally in pieces on the steps, that looked good to me. Yeah. Like those those pieces looked legit. Even um the other effect of like Bruce Willis falling when he does, you know, that like long fall through yep. the glass window into the pool. That, you know, is very like Die Hard ish, right? Yeah. Like that seems like one of those movies, but it's of the time. It doesn't look horrible. It doesn't look great. It just kind of is. Um, and yeah, I don't know. the The rest of the effects throughout the whole thing are probably, for the most part, practical effects. Like yeah. the whole thing with like her with their bodies adjusting was done with. Yeah, you, you know, can like, tell. Like there's one it, moment where Goldie Hawn hits Meryl Streep over, like on top of the head, and it compresses her head into her neck and they do this front shot and you can tell that they have created this bodysuit for Meryl Streep where her neck and shoulders come up about cheek level for her. Um, And then they cut to behind her when she lifts up her own head to like 
And you can sort of see the computer graphics when she stretches her head back up, but I thought that was great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The effects work. That's one of the things, too, that is kind of... Um, Meryl has not done movies like that before. And actually, at the time, she kind of was said to be very uninterested in them, that this was kind of her experience with that. And she was like, oh, I don't want to do that again. To, yeah. like, sit around and, you know, act with green screens and, you know, yeah. that kind of stuff was not something she was particularly interested in, which really she hasn't done that again until Mary Poppins returns, I would say, which was a much smaller thing for her. Um right. I don't know. I can't think of another one that was super special effecty until that one. Uh-uh. No. I can't either. So, to look, I, think, I think there's something in that, that, like, she then spent a lot of time avoiding doing movies like that. But, um, yeah, do you have any favorite scenes in this movie? Hmm. <laughs> I love... I love the scene where they show up at Goldie Hawn's book opening and <laughs> um, well, is that the scene? The scene where they decide to make up and play nice. Um, I'm you trying know, to remember. I do. Anyway, I loved it so much because it did ring true to some degree, <laughs> I've had I've had friendships and relationships where, obviously not to the extreme in this movie, but you know you're on the outs with somebody and you have that conversation where you both kind of fake that you weren't mad at the other person and you make up the reason for why you haven't been in touch in the last. <laughs> And then everybody plays nice and everybody's fine. Right. <laughs> and I uh, I love the way they did that. I don't know if I have a super favorite scene, though. I'm trying to think. What about you? I The one that caught me this time, um, I always remember, of course, the, like, honestly, the the battle scene between between the two of them with the special effects and the, like, you know, that was always a favorite scene. But yeah. this time, the one that, that kind of caught me off guard mostly because I had forgotten about it was the scene with her and Sidney Pollack where Sidney Pollack is the emergency room doctor. Yes. It's so good. He is really funny in that scene. I mean, she is too, but she doesn't have as much to do as he does. He's really good in that scene. He, he freaks out. It's magic. That I would agree. I had forgotten about that. I just watched it yesterday and I've already forgotten, but no, I would agree. That's probably the best scene in the movie. There were, I mean, that again has some, I think part of it is because I bet that was the older, the older writer, because that's like some of that shit was vaudeville, you know, like the throwing yeah. out was the throwing out of the stethoscope thing. Like I, like all of that was so old school comedy. Um, yeah. So that for me was the one that I was like, oh, this is funny. This is, this is good. And the, you know, um, I don't know. I, I did like this movie. Again, I kind of feel like we we probably sound like we didn't like this movie very much. Um, it's it it's problematic in in some ways, but it also is funny if you if you I guess I don't know take it as a comedy. If you I don't yeah, know. I love physical comedy, and honestly, Goldie Hawn and Meryl Streep do such a magical job. It's real. I mean, I thought about what it would take to pretend like your head is on backwards right 
because she had to do that. You know, they had to film her coming down the stairs. And it's amazing. They both do such a great job. I love slapstick physical comedy like that. And the movie really is structured so strongly that it just moves along and you're entertained. It's very entertaining, for sure. There is a little... um snippet of there's not very much content on there's not like very much in terms of special features on the dvd but there is this short little featurette where they interview the people and um in merrill's segment they were talking to her and actually they referenced that scene because that was the one day where her mother in real life visited the set and so you know because they were going to have her head on backwards she actually had to wear this like this not a mask i don't even know what to think of it as it was basically a bag over her head so they could superimpose it so they actually show her yeah basically walking and walking backwards with this bag over her head and she told this kind of funny story about her mom just not understanding and being like they're paying you all this money to be in this movie it's you and bruce willis here and they're putting a bag over your head and making you walk backwards that is magic. So, <laughs> yes, they definitely did film that scene because they kind of showed some of the filming of it in this in the behind the scenes. I wish there was more of this one. I wish actually this was one that would be a good commentary is a commentary with with her or Goldie Hawn or both of them or Bruce Willis. I don't I feel like Bruce Willis probably wouldn't add much. I don't know. Maybe he would. But I like Bruce I like Bruce Willis movies sometimes, but like he's just somebody who, you know, he's not going to tell you much. But um, you know what else I liked about this movie is that um, whoever did the design, um, the the set design, they really leaned into that sort of gothic. Oh, yeah. Almost like gothic fairy tale. Yeah. And I think that contributes to it holding up as well because you you don't feel like you're in any kind of reality. I mean, it is reality, but it's not really. <laughs> there is so much marble in this movie. Right? Like even, even the um, spa she goes to, yep. to Meryl Streep, the spa she goes to for her treatments has like a very beetle juicy feel to it. Like everything's just a little off. Yeah. <laughs> and it's I- fantastic. Actually, I wonder if if Beetlejuice was before or after this, because that's actually a good reference. It was. I bet it was a visual reference for this one. Yeah. I wouldn't be surprised. Because it has, I mean, like, this one is, I wonder, actually, when, I should look this up, I wonder when this movie came out. I wonder if this was, like, a Halloween-timed thing. Um, I wonder if I can figure this out. wonder. This came out July 31st, 1992, so I guess not. But interesting, close enough. Yeah. Um, so as long as we're talking, as long as I'm looking this up, the budget for this movie was somewhere around $55 million, which is kind of a lot for that period of time. Yeah. Opening weekend was, uh, 12 and a half and the U S gross was 58, but the worldwide gross was about $150 million. So it made almost a hundred million dollars. And I'm sure with DVD and everything after that, I'm sure it did more than that. Um, it, it currently has a 6.6 out of 10 on IMDb, which is not horrible, and it has a 56 meta score, so that's also not that's kind of middle of the road. Yeah. Um, so it won an Oscar for visual effects, uh, was nominated for a couple Golden Globes, but um, 
Yeah, it's it's for sure an interesting movie. Where would you say this one sits in terms of your uh, rankings and your lists and all of that? Performance-wise, it's sitting sort of in the middle for me because I think she's great in it, um, but it's it's not one of my favorites of hers. Um, sure. I would probably sit it at, we've done 29 now, I would sit it at 15. Okay. Yeah, I would sit it at about 15. And then in terms of movies... I don't know. I'd probably put it and I put it at about twenty. It's it's above it's above the you know, it's above the House of the Spirits and Ricky and the Flash and She Devil and Still of the Night and all those. Okay. Um, it's fun, but it's below it's below Julie and Julia and Mary Poppins and the Mamma Mia's and. Okay. Yeah. Well. You can look, hopefully, in the uh, show notes, I will have updated our lists here. We're kind of on top of it. I'm going to put um, in performances, I think I have it uh, currently, I I lost track here, but I think it's about 17. I have it in between. It's not as good as Out of Africa, <laughs> but I think I, I actually have it right now in between um, Out of Africa and The Deer Hunter, and actually putting it above The Deer Hunter seems strange to me in this moment, but... <laughs> I think it's just because those movies are so different. That's performances, not movies. Um, and then I have it a little bit lower uh, for the overall movie, but I do have it um, in between The River Wild and Ricky and the Flash. I have it above Ricky and the Flash. Um, yeah, I think that feels about right. Somewhere yeah. in there, anyway. I would agree. I'm moving her in the performances. She's. I'm, I moved it down to 17. It's between Heartburn and The Deer Hunter for me. Okay. Interesting. Although, no, I can't. I, I sort of agree with you. I don't think I can. It's hard to. It's hard to separate the movie from the performance. And right. also, her performance in Deer Hunter is so lovely. I'm not sure I can. It's very hard to compare. Well, and the thing that I always come back to, and it's not really fair, especially with Meryl Streep movies, because she's you know not only got Sophie's Choice, but she's also got the Deer Hunter and Holocaust and all these movies that, quite frankly, are hard to take sometimes yeah. um, but you know i always think to myself which one would i rather watch death becomes her or deer hunter and quite frankly it's not really a tough call so that's actually a really good like that's a really good question to ask yourself yeah i would agree i'm not gonna i'm not gonna voluntarily watch deer hunter again anytime soon and i would definitely watch this one again it's just fun yeah it is. Before we move on, um, mm -hmm. I, we have a, a special thing. I actually want to do uh, two things here quick. Um, one is we have uh, a friend of ours now, a, a listener of ours named Cody Bryant, who has stayed yeah. in, in good touch with both of us. Uh, and he sent me a thing back in January asking when we were going to do this movie. And I said, well, we're maybe by the time we get to the nineties, we will, we will do that. And uh, so I said, Hey, why don't you send me a, a little thing about why you like this movie? And so he did. And so I'm going to read what he wrote me. He said, I think I can trace this film to one of the very first times I came to know Meryl Streep. And let's face it. We never forget our first encounter with Meryl. He capitalized Meryl there. Um, I must have been a very young kid at the time, and I was immediately drawn to her. Who was this very attractive, beautiful woman being super funny and silly on screen? This isn't necessarily her best performance, but it is, in fact, her most unexpected performance. And I think this speaks to me. Seeing Meryl in a side that is vastly different from all those heavy dramas, she can still hold her own with comedy chops, too. The over-the-top antics and story make for a rewarding treat. These three Hollywood heavyweights help us believe in and root for these horrible people. 
But the biggest reward that comes from Death Becomes Her is watching Streep and Han square off toe-to-toe. I agree with that, by the way. Their tell-offs and physical humor makes it hard to turn away from the screen. It's such a gem of a movie that I feel it often falls off lists because it's exactly what we don't expect. Treat yourself to another screening of one of the most underrated films in Mrs. Streep's filmography. You'll be so happy you did. So that was very nice. And I wanted to... uh, uh, kind of counteract that with the, one of the segments that we've taken to recently, the one that I lifted from uh, one of my other favorite podcasts, How Did This Get Made? What they do is they spend, you know, an hour and a half to two hours trashing a movie and then read a couple five-star reviews that other people have. We're kind of flipping the script. We usually <laughs> say nice things about a movie and then uh, read a one-star review. So there are a few of these on IMDb, but this one caught my attention. This is written by somebody called The Creeper. (laughs) And the title is A Complete Waste of Anyone's Time. (laughs) Okay. These always make me laugh. I don't know why. Um, So this is what he writes. or or Death Becomes Her has to be one of the worst movies ever made. I don't understand how someone could classify this as a comedy movie. There are no laughs. In addition to no laughs, we have little plot and bad overall direction. The acting is not too brilliant either. Uh, I'm going to pause for a second wow. and mention. <laughs> I want to. I want to pause and mention that he misspelled two in a sentence in which he was criticizing somebody's brilliance <laughs> or lack of. <laughs> Okay, continuing. Because it has little plot is n- because it has little plot is not what ruins this movie. I've seen a lot of movies with bad acting, no plot, and little direction that result in ninety minutes of pure entertainment. But this movie is just horrible. Why would someone even kind of like this movie? Sure beats the royal crap out of me. <laughs> the royal crap. Here's a good one. It hate it. I assume they meant I hate it. I- <laughs> I usually never write negative reviews, but couldn't help myself with this garbage. This movie is horrible, hideous, terrible, pathetic, boring. Besides Motel Hell, this is the worst movie ever and a complete waste of anyone's time. Wait, is Motel Hell a movie? I I was going to look it up and I forgot. I don't know. Oh, I'm dead curious now. I'll look it up while you read. Yes, Motel Hell it's called. All caps, (laughs) I warn you, don't see this. (laughs) And then this to me is this to me kind of reveals a little something about the creeper people who want to find a good comedy should check out senior trip dude. Where's my car dumb and dumber man on the moon liar liar Austin powers and Tommy boy end of review. Wow. Okay. Motel hell 1980. Uh, It has a Six out of ten stars on IMDb. It looks like a horror film with Vincent Smith, Bruce Smith, and Ida Smith. I wonder if they're all related. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. Those are the character names. Hello. <laughs> I was like, wow, that's quite a cast. Um, Nancy Parsons, Paul Link, Rory Calhoun. I have never heard of this movie. This is fascinating. I, I haven't either. I'm looking it up to, yes, I've never even heard of any of these actors, actually. Well, I would say that I wholeheartedly agree with Cody's review and think it was so well written. And he, um, we couldn't have said it better. Um, That's amazing. Thanks, Cody. Also, um, Creeper (laughs) 
keep creeping. <laughs> well, the the best thing about Creeper, which, you know, if you go, it's, you know, it's just on IMDb. Anybody can access it. But um, I would say about 70% of the words in that review were capitalized. <laughs> but not all. people do that for emphasis. <laughs> but not all. But and not just, not the entire word. It wasn't like, you know, one word is emphasized. It's just like the first letter of each but oh. in only in certain sentences. So it, I really, I have some questions for the crew. <laughs> I also love it when people say there's little to no direction. I was like, do you understand what it takes to make a movie? Because even okay. bad direction is still direction. <laughs> and in a movie like this, I mean, for goodness sake, wow. Um, yeah, anyway. Well, um, let's move on to our other segments. So oh. would, would you rather do uh, movies we wish Meryl had been in or Six Degrees? Um, but uh, I don't actually have a movie that I wish Meryl had been in. Do you? I did think of something, actually. It's not a movie, actually. Um, I, okay. keep coming, I keep coming back to TV. Um, oh, yeah. I, that's where we're at right now. It's you know? where it's we, happening. We keep talking about that. There are listeners are probably tired of that. But this is a different one. It occurred to me that Meryl has never hosted or made an appearance on Saturday Night Live, which is kind of interesting to me because I would think she would have got that offer at some point. I mean, she had to have, right? I would think so. That's interesting. That would be so amazing. Yeah. Doesn't it seem like a choice that she hasn't? Yeah. I would be very surprised if she wasn't invited. That just doesn't seem right. Yeah. Especially after something like Devil Wears Prada. Like, yeah, they would have, they would have had her, you know, and especially in that, like, again, we've talked about this many times, but she had this run, you know, for four or five years there where she had like something very big every summer, you know, yeah, where, where she was like the counter programming to like all these action movies. And, um, yeah. She had to have. It feels very much like a choice not to. She probably has in her contract limitations on what kind of promotion she'll do. I'm sure. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I mean, I I guess that's something that I'm curious. She must not have a particular interest in doing that. Yeah. Although, if you think about it, like, think of the, um, think of the contemporaries that we reference when we talk about Meryl Streep. We talk about Jessica Lange. I don't think she's ever hosted. Glenn Close did once, maybe more than once, but I know she did once because she did this really funny um, sketch that you can still see on YouTube um, about Fatal Attraction. She's in uh, like a, a support group meeting as as the character from Fatal Attraction. It's really good. You should. That's amazing. Um, if if you don't, you should follow her. Listeners, you should follow her on Instagram. Um, because she's great. She's it's, so great. It's interesting what she's doing, isn't it? She's just yeah. like talking right into the camera. Right <laughs> you know who else is fantastic on Instagram? Not to go on a tangent, but I highly recommend you follow her is Candace Bergen. She is oh. funny as hell. She makes me laugh all the time. She is so kooky and fantastic. I don't think I do follow her, but I like her very much. Um, Candace Bergen is an interesting example too, because she actually is what, you know, used to host all the time she's in the five timers club is it especially when the show was first starting she used to host all the time nice. lily tomlin used to host back in those in the early days to goldie hawn i don't think has ever hosted i you know like think of all those the people like meryl streep the people who you know diane keaton people like that i yeah. don't think she's ever hosted so 
Maybe. It's funny because Golden Ho- Goldie Hawn got her start on Laughing. Right. Um, so that, that kind of surprises me. Yeah. Maybe Goldie Hawn did. I don't think so, though. I don't remember. But maybe sometimes she did. I mean, Goldie Hawn also, like, she co-hosted the Oscars once or twice, which is something that, like, is awesome. surprising. You know, like, you wouldn't think of her for that, but she did. Um, so, anyway, there's just, that was my idea, was that, I, you know, maybe, you know, if it hasn't happened by now, I guess the chances are maybe not great that it will happen. But, you know, that would have been nice to see at some point. And I guess there's, I'm curious why it didn't happen at some point or hasn't yet happened. Because, again, it feels probably like a choice. Like, it's something that Meryl's just not interested in doing. And Yeah. Like curious why but um what about our six degrees so our six degrees person last time was tony shalhoub yeah did you connect him i did and it was sort of by accident i was watching oh i was watching some movie i can't remember what it was and there was a preview beforehand for um a movie called is it big night he plays um stanley tucci's brother and stanley tucci and meryl are in Devil Wears Prada and uh, Julie and Julia together. Okay. What's your connection? Big night. And actually, you know, I feel like Tony Shalhoub and Stanley Tucci, I feel like they were in another movie. Were they in a movie called The Imposters together? Ooh, you know what? I totally forgot about that. Let's see. I think so. I think the two of them are actually good friends in real life, if I remember correctly. Um, anyway, um, what, what I thought of with Tony Shalhoub, there was one that I thought of immediately, which was uh, Men in Black. I think he's been in all of the Men in Black movies. And so, like, connection to Tommy Lee Jones with uh, Hope Springs came to mind. Um, there were a couple other ones that came to, to mind that I could go through. However, it's also maybe uh, interesting to people that Tony Shalhoub actually has a direct connection to Meryl that we've actually talked about in our podcast and completely really? forgot about. Yes. When he was first starting out, uh-huh. he was extra in Heartburn. Was he really? Yes. Did he's we talk in, about that? We totally talked about it oh. because you can see him in the in the thing. He's on an airplane with Meryl. Oh my god, that's amazing! But it was before so anybody. It, it's, it's not, like not even a six degrees. It's. <laughs> we both. I actually lost the game. That's correct. <laughs> that's amazing. That's all right. Um, I am currently watching him. I have already watched it. I'm rewatching it. I also highly recommend everybody go watch Tony Shalhoub and the Marvelous Mrs. Maisel because he is a gem. <laughs> he is so good. <laughs> that's been on my queue for a long time. I thought maybe you were going to say Monk for a second. Oh, he was great on that, too. He was really fa- I mean, I used to watch him on Wings. So oh. good. Well, he had a nice run on Nurse Jackie, too. Um, Did he? I never did watch Nurse Jackie, and I need to. Nurse Jackie is really good. Um, One of the things, uh, it's kind of a, it's a heavier show than you might expect. It's, you know, it's about addiction, and it's it's a pretty unflinching look at it. It's in the context of it's, it's usually billed as a comedy, um, and it definitely has its, its moments, but it's also just, it's a very real show, I think, which is something that I really respect. But, you know, if this is not the time for something heavy, I feel like it's a it's a good warning. <laughs> um, yeah. So for our next six degrees person, I was supposed to pick somebody and I, I left it till the last moment here. And actually what I just did was we were just talking about that David Kep, 
who was one of the writers for um, for Death Becomes, or he was the guy I was talking about who also wrote Jurassic Park and Mission Impossible and a bunch of other things. So I was just scrolling through his filmography, and um, I'm going to pick, because he wrote a movie, and I'm not going to say which movie, because there actually is a connection in it, but um, <laughs> I'm going to pick, uh, pick Felicity Jones, the British actress Felicity oh, Jones. Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, she's not been in a movie with Meryl, so I, she's not the trickiest one to connect, uh, but it also may take a moment, so it, it, it will be worth doing. So Felicity Jones for next week or next time, I should say, Hey, maybe next week now that we got time. I think this is possible. Um, so we are, what are we going to do, Meryl? What is our next one? We're going to stick to positive. Yeah, we're, we're going to do, it's complicated so that we can just look at pretty things and pretty people and laugh and <laughs> you know keep it lighthearted in the time of the corona yeah so essentially what we did is we kind of skipped over the 70s and 80s we did 90s today it's complicated it's 2009 so we'll do 2000s we're just going to skip the 70s and 80s this round which is okay because there are actually a lot fewer movies especially in the 70s but even the 80s uh, we have a lot more movies to get to in the later part of her career than the early part of her career and so I think it's just okay to skip those rounds this this time, and we'll maybe stick to the stick to the plan of you know eighties, nineties, two thousands, twenty tens. Maybe not. Maybe we'll just kind of do whatever we we're feeling for a little while. But um, we're gonna do. It's complicated, and we'll we'll get that out to y'all as soon as we can. Um, we look forward to being back. It was fun to talk about this movie, and um, we both liked it. I hope it didn't seem like we were ripping it apart too much. No, I think we sounded quite positive. Do you? Okay, good. I felt it felt like we were kind of attacking it. But yeah, I like I think I think our I think our listeners I, I mean, I don't know. We I mean, you can't ignore it. Yeah. <laughs> I think bottom line, really great legitimately great comedic performances. The stuff that is problematic about this movie is not the fault of anybody um, at this point. You know, it was like in the 90s, this is what people were making. Like this was something that, you know, this this was not something that people really thought twice about. And, you know, that reflects on all of us. But I think I think Cody captured why the movie holds up really well. Yeah. And I would agree. I would agree with what he said for sure. Yeah, so um, it's a good one if you're looking for a lighthearted uh, Meryl movie, especially in these kind of strange times. This may be one of the ones that you're looking for. At the very least, it's a very interesting movie. Very interesting movie. So um, it's a it's a good one. And also taking inspiration from Cody, it, listeners out there, if you have a favorite Meryl movie and you want to tell us why, please send it in. Yes, especially. Thank you for saying that. Um, especially if you happen to be a big fan of it's complicated send that to us sooner rather than later because that's the next one we're doing um it'll be meryl streep gmail at wait what is it meryl streep podcast at (laughs) gmail.com just go into the ether (laughs) yes um yes somebody out there will get it who knows well thanks everybody for listening we'll be back as soon as we can um and we'll see you then boy we got to get a good tagline i think meryl (laughs) (laughs) Uh, all right cool thanks bye everybody all right that's all